passage is from John chapter 17. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that in the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The word of the Lord. Would you please join with me in prayer? <coughs> Father, once again, um, we don't want to treat lightly the fact that you, the very creator of the universe, <coughs> speak to us. That whenever we open your word, you are there speaking in your word, and your spirit is present with us. Lord, we want to be people who hear. We want to be people who are drawn near to you. And so we ask again uh, that your spirit would be at work helping us, your church, to hear whatever you want us to hear that we might be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, since, I think, Easter, we have been uh, looking at uh, what is sometimes described as the upper room discourse, that the last words Jesus kind of as he's gathering his disciples around where he knows he's about to go to the cross. And just kind of as a confession, this series was actually supposed to finish on the first Sunday of June. I was like planning to have June, uh, like uh, John 17, our final series, finishing with a picnic and then we would start the Psalms, but something happened and that is John 17 is just way too much. Like it's, the more that I spent time with this, the more that I've realized just how much there is in 
Jesus's prayer, we've been thinking about this like last week and this week especially, that, that before Jesus went to his death, he thought of you and me and he prayed for us, which is extraordinary. So as we kind of bring things to a conclusion um, this morning, I want us to look at just one more section from this extraordinary prayer. Um, where we're going to be looking especially at verses like 20 to 23, when Jesus is turning his attention and he thinks about us and he prays for us. And I, I want to just kind of draw your attention from the very outset to, to an extraordinary statement that he makes in the middle. And, and hopefully you'll see where we're going with this over time. Verse 22, Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. That first part, the glory you have given to me, where Jesus is, is taking us right back to, to the, the mysterious doctrine of the Trinity. We've... We talked about this a few weeks ago at the very beginning when Jesus was talking about the relationship he has with the Father for all eternity, where, where the Father and the Son love each other perfectly, and we're told that everything that the Son has, he, he shares with the Father, everything the Father has, he shares with the Son. There is this perfect relationship of love, and, and part of that is that the Father shares his glory with the Son, which is why when Jesus is on earth, he can say, if you look at me, you will see God, because I and the Father are one. So, so Jesus is saying, the glory that you have given me, and yet then he goes on to say, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The them here is very clear, verse 20, we're told that Jesus is praying for those who have come to believe because of the disciples' work. That's us. Jesus is saying, the glory that I have from the Father, I have given now to the church. And by this, I believe he's saying, and now the way it works is that when people look at the church, in the same way that when you look at me, you see God, when you look at the church and the church is acting the way it's supposed to, if you look at the church, that is the way the world will come to see God. Because Jesus has given his church the glory of God. How has he done that? Well, he explains, I think, throughout this passage where he says, I have given them my word. I have spoken truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Make them changed by the truth that I have given. We, we see also that Jesus has given his spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given to the church to change us. And so through the word of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus, we now are able to hold forth to the world the one thing that it most deeply needs, and that is the knowledge we have been given by Jesus the glory of God so that through the church, the world will come to know. In fact, that is explicitly what Jesus says when he's talking about this, where he says at the end of verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, if we just allow that to settle into our minds and our hearts, we will begin to see that we have been given lives of extraordinary significance. We're in a time, I think it's fair to say, where people are struggling with a real lack of a sense of direction, of purpose, of 
agency, or it just, the idea that we can somehow make any kind of difference in the world just seems so alien to us. I mean, how, how would we change things? Can we change things politically? It's just a tug of war back and forth with no change being made. Can we change things to where it work? It feels like so much of the world is dominated by these mega corporations like Amazon and Google. And even if somehow we were to figure out how we could make a change, what change would be good? How can we move things in the right direction? We just, we feel kind of aimless. There was a survey, uh, University of Michigan, it's been doing it since like 1991, um, where one of the questions it asks teens, this is like eighth graders, 10th graders, and 12th graders to answer questions about is, to what degree that, do you agree with the statement that I don't feel my life is useful? And for, for quite a while, it was kind of staying at the same place, but about a decade ago, it just shot up. It's practically doubled. Nearly one in two teenagers say, I don't think my life has any use. And it's expressing, I think, a mood that our culture feels. We, we just feel like we don't know what our purpose is, how to make a difference. And, and here Jesus says to us, the church, look at this. I... The, the, the glory that the Father has given to me, I have given to you. So that the world might come to know the true, triune God of love. The one that it needs, the one the reason it's broken and it's fractured is because it needs this. And you, church, are the one who bear forth the glory of God that the world might know. You know, in our lives, day in, day out, we get, you know, there's so many little things, it's hard for us to keep track of what's going on, but I, I dare say at the very end, when Jesus returns and we are given kind of insight into what's happened, we will realize that there was one story that was central to everything in this world. And to our astonishment, we will realize we were at the very heart of it. Because what God is doing is rescuing the world through Jesus, and he's rescuing the world through Jesus, through his church. Now that actually has the potential of changing so much about how we view the way, as, as God's church, as we are at work, in our jobs, as God's church, as we gather together in families, all of those things would be worth time that I don't, we can't spend on this morning. This morning, I, I simply want our attention to be kind of directed by what Jesus himself is saying. Because as Jesus talks about the glory that he has given the church, the glory of God that he has given the church that the world might believe, what he focuses on as central to this is the church being one. That we will enable the world to believe, that we will show forth the glory of God by our oneness. Let me just... Read with you again what Jennifer read so well a few minutes ago, verses 20 to 23. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, that is for his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Again, that's any of us who identify as followers of Jesus. It's the church. And here's what he prays for us. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. That's oneness. And what will happen through our oneness? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Again, let's see where he says in verse 22. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, 
that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And again, what will happen through oneness? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus is, is, is clear here that the way that we show forth the glory of God somehow centers and has its foundation in us being one. And at this point, I wonder if, if there's at least a part of you that is kind of feeling a bit skeptical in this moment. I mean, to begin with, it's probably hard for us to imagine how the church could could be the thing that people look at and say, I see God, when right now we're just so cognizant, so aware of the failures of the church and, and of how so many people are turning away from anything that, that even somewhat resembles organized religion because there's just so much discouragement. How can the church do this? But then to say, and it's going to happen when the church is one. I mean, that... That actually almost feels empirically, verifiably false. I, about 50 years ago in Australia, the uh, Methodist denomination, all the congregational churches, and most of the Presbyterians, all came together and became one new denomination called the United Church. And I think when we hear Jesus praying, may they be one, that's the kind of thing that a lot of our minds go to, that is assuming some sort of kind of organizational coming together. But here's the thing. When the United Church existed, came into being, it's not like we suddenly had thousands of Australians flooding into the churches asking, what must I do to be saved? We've seen this corporate merger. I mean, that's, that's not persuasive, I think, to people. And that's also not when Jesus is saying, may they be one, the kind of oneness that he is talking about. Notice, again and again, we saw this first in verse 11, and then again two different times in the paragraph I just read, the oneness that Jesus is speaking about is a very specific kind of oneness. May we as a church be one in the very way that God himself is one. And, and I would suggest to you that that means at least two things. That means oneness in our faith in Jesus and oneness in the love of the Spirit. So there are, I suppose, different ways that one can experience unity or a group can experience unity. There can be, you might say, the oneness or the unity of compromise. Like if you've ever been in a group of like a lot of friends who are trying to figure out where to go to dinner together, usually when that happens, you just kind of find the place that no one hates, right? Like it's, let's go to Chili's or something like that. It's what everyone can kind of agree on. That's the oneness of compromise. And sometimes I think churches try to experience that kind of unity by just saying, we're not going to talk about anything controversial. We'll keep things just inspirational and encouraging and just stay there. Suppose you could also say there's a different kind of oneness, maybe like a oneness of control. Like if you were to poll people in North Korea, all of them would say, all hail King Jong-un. But that's because they would go to jail if they did not. There is a oneness there, but it is a oneness of control. And... I dare say some churches tragically seek that kind of unity by having very strong leadership that tries to stifle all kind of dissent. That, neither of those are the kind of oneness that Jesus is talking about. The oneness that Jesus is speaking of here is closer to what we might call a oneness of conviction. So 40 years ago, 40 years ago, when there was um, what, about a quarter of a million people protesting in Washington, D.C. for civil rights, and when it culminated in Martin Luther King 
Junior's famous I Have a Dream speech, the people there were one, and they weren't one just because, well, there's nothing else they had better to do, and this was the thing they kind of came up with together. They weren't there unified because someone had forced them to do it. They were there because there was this deep, deep conviction that they shared, that human dignity was to be shared by all of colors of all races. And it's that kind of deep conviction that is the oneness that Jesus is speaking of here. Notice, the church, as Jesus says in verse 20, are those who have come to believe in this certain truth that Jesus has spoken through his disciples. And what's more, the oneness that Jesus says that we are to experience is not simply just a oneness with each other, where we just kind of find some sort of mutual agreement and say that works for us. Notice, Jesus actually says that they may be one just as you, Father, are me, I am you, that they may be in us. It is a oneness that comes not through our own kind of finding some sort of middle ground, but our finding Jesus. And, and the more that we are drawn to Jesus and find our connection to him and our faith in him, the more that we discover side by side, there are millions of people who are there with us where we are one in one faith, one hope, one baptism, one God. We are one in a conviction because Jesus has shown us himself. That's the oneness that Jesus is talking about here. And when this oneness is on display, this unity of faith and conviction, the world will take notice. Paul says something very similar when he, um, he's writing to the Philippian church. And if you know anything about the Philippian church, they were experiencing persecution. They were being attacked because they did not want to say Caesar was Lord, but Jesus was Lord. And, and so that meant they were feeling much resistance. And Paul says, even as you are being attacked, if you can stand firm in one faith, in the one spirit, with one mission for the gospel, this will be a sign to them. It will be evidence that something real is happening. Because here's the thing, that, that church, this kind of ragtag group of people in Philippi, they were... This strange smattering of people. You had Roman soldiers. You had wealthy landowners. You had slaves. You had Jews. These were people who would never come together and never agree on anything. And yet here they were with one voice saying, Jesus is Lord. And even as people around were offended, they were also finding themselves saying, what is going on? And I want to suggest that for those with eyes to see, that same miracle is continuing to take place in this world, that same kind of oneness in the church. And you might say, wait a second, isn't the church just deeply divided? How can you say that? And yes, there are, without a doubt, deep divisions, differences of significance that are happening throughout Christianity, and it is tragic, and yet, if we understand really what's going on, we'll realize that even as important as those differences are, there is an even deeper and more surprising, extraordinary oneness that already exists. Let me try to illustrate this experientially. I have, let's see, I've grown up in a church in the blue state of Massachusetts and then worshiped for a year at a church in the red state of Texas. I have been a youth pastor in a country town an hour outside of Sydney. And I was a youth pastor also at a church in the heart of the Silicon Valley. 
I have friends who are pastors in both Kenya and England, Chile, and Switzerland. And we, as a church, have connections with Tokyo. We hear from Sema Aoki about the church planting he's doing there. We have people who have visited Haiti. Here's the thing that I wish I could convey to you, but maybe you already have some sense of for those of you who have visited Haiti. Even as you sometimes experience the differences, and there are great differences, like what I've just described, we have differences politically. We have difference in language, racially, economically, all sorts of differences. But what's just extraordinary is that whenever you go from one church to another throughout the world, you find that beneath all of those differences, there is this deep, powerful unity. There's this deep, shared conviction that Jesus is king. That the Trinitarian God is at the center of the universe. Where else can you find that? Where, where we cannot seem to agree on just about anything, and yet when you scan all those things, there is this one voice shared by the church throughout the world. Jesus is Lord. He is our God. He has risen from the dead. That is a oneness that is a sign of something real going on. And I dare say, the only reason it's not even more of... of it has more of an effect is because so often I think we mute that. You know, churches tend to want to emphasize their differences. We differentiate so we can say, here's why you'd want to visit our church. In a day and age that seems to be attracted to conflict, we, we end up emphasizing all the ways that we disagree with each other. And I am not in any way, again, trying to diminish that there are some important things there. But... But I believe when Jesus is calling us to be one, he is calling us to center on what is central. What matters most to us and what unites us with the church throughout the world is that Jesus is king. That is what defines you and me. Look, I, I'm, I'm very happily Presbyterian. I'm quite happy if you are wanting to talk through the greatness of the Presbyterian Church government, I can bore you with that. Or I can speak about why I believe that Reformed theology is the right framework for understanding what Scripture teaches, for how we come to faith in Jesus. I can also speak why I believe that infant baptism is the biblical way of doing it. But in the end, when Jesus returns, I will not be singing praises to Presbyterians. I mean, that's obvious. We will be singing praises to Jesus. That he is our king. And even now, that is what defines us. And the more that we make Jesus central to who we are, the more that we identify ourselves as one with churches throughout the world, throughout the centuries, there is a oneness that comes in our conviction, a oneness in the truth that is found in Jesus. So secondly, I think when Jesus is talking about this oneness, may they be one as, as you are in me and I am in you. There's also a oneness that we might describe as the love of the Spirit. Again, this, this language, verse 23, I am them, you and me. There's a lot of I and me, you and, you know, like that, that, that happens throughout this prayer. We've talked about this before. Sometimes theologians will talk about the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son by the power of the Spirit. That is... That there is such a sharing, such a love between the Father and the Son that it's like there's a oneness where both of them are in each other. 
So that everything that is true of the Father is given to the Son. Everything that is true and given to the Son, the Son shares with the Father. There is this deep love. There is this deep oneness. And Jesus is praying, may they be one like that. May we have a oneness that reflects the very oneness that's found in the Trinity. Now, that neutral and dwelling language is, is, is hard to get our minds around, isn't it? But I think we can kind of understand a little bit. Do you know how sometimes certain people will kind of get under your skin? And I'm not talking about an irritation. I'm talking about a way that whatever they're feeling, you start feeling it inside of you. So what goes on with their life, you experience internally. They are somehow in you. That's what Jesus is praying for us. That by the, the same Spirit that is at work between the Father and the Son, the Spirit will be at work in me so that more and more I don't live for myself, but I live in Christ for you. First, for my family, of course, but for all of you. And similarly, the Spirit is at work in each of you so that you are like that towards all of the rest of us. So that we are in each other. So that if one of us has is, is been dealt with grief and heartbreak, we grieve together. Some of us literally sitting with the person, not speaking, just sitting in the grief with them because we are in each other in love. And if one person does something that's just really extraordinary, everyone celebrates. If someone is, is in financial hardship, we come together and say, hey, what is mine is yours, and we share so that person can be provided for. If we have, and all of us do, have failings that annoy each other, there is a love of the Spirit that overlooks, that, that endures, that is patient, and at times when we are wrong, that is forgiving. This is the oneness that Jesus says will show forth the glory of God. If we are one in the way that Jesus and the Father are one, and you might ask, how? How, how does us being that way towards each other somehow show the world the glory of God? I think the answer is there is something unmistakably compelling about love when it is encountered. So a number of years ago, um, I attended a church where there was um, a, a middle-aged woman or so, a mom being baptized. Um, her story was that even though she had had some kind of loose connections with the church early on in life, she just kind of walked away from it feeling like Christianity was kind of unimportant, irrelevant to her. And that was true for much of her adulthood until one of her kids actually started going to a youth group. And at first she was worried, I hope this isn't a cult, but it seems to be okay. But then one day she received the phone call that you never want to get, that her child had been in an accident. And it wasn't clear how this child was going to turn out. It was a car accident that was just brutal. And over the next days and weeks, as this person thankfully improved and was able to get well, what struck her was not just the healing, but how there was this endless stream of kids from the youth group, and pastor from the youth group, and other parents of the kids who were there to visit her child, and she saw how they loved her child, and she asked herself, what is going on? And a year later, she was baptized as a follower of Christ. Now, there are two things about that story that stick out to me. One is, this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. 
that as we are one in the very way that God himself is one, it shows something to the world that is unmistakable. It is evidence of the reality of who God is and the love of God. But the other thing that sticks out to me, and this is probably by more way of application, is um, that only was able to take place because the people within this church not only were willing to love, but also had the space the capacity to express that kind of love. Here's what I mean. I, I actually put myself in that situation. I'm like, if I were in that moment, would I be one of those ones who was just kind of coming and visiting? And a part of me is like, I hope I would, but would I be too busy? See, we know something about love, and that, that is that love never happens efficiently. Love never happens according to a schedule that fits with our schedule, and and I wonder if at times we can allow our lives to be so full that people become to us interruptions. And what Jesus is telling us is that the Spirit is at work in us, binding each other to be one in love. And I would encourage you and me to think, what does it look like to cultivate that amongst us? Here, here's something I know about our church. Our church... I love bragging about our congregation when I talk about other people because I feel like I, I can take no credit for us. There is so many ways, even within the last year, I have seen ways that our church actively cares for each other and loves each other and spends time for each other because that's who we are. And that's the work of the Spirit. And we give thanks to God for that. But the other thing I know about not just this church, but this community, is that we are hyperly busy. Our lives are full, so there is nothing remaining. And let me encourage that if we are thinking about what it looks like for us to fulfill Jesus' calling here, to be one in the very way that God is one, we need to resist. We need to protect our time so that we can always prioritize each other, so that we can love the way that God calls us to, because love does not work if we hurry it. So you might notice, as we have been trying to reflect on... Um, on, on Jesus' prayer for us, prayer for oneness, that I've been trying to kind of apply this to us in a couple of ways, asking that as we think about the oneness we have in Jesus, that we, we make Jesus central, not our differences central. As we think of the oneness that we have through the Spirit, that we seek to leave space for love, that we can be a loving community. The reason that I'm doing that is because this is not just an, an on or off switch. There, there is this final part where he says, may they be perfectly one, in verse 23. And that word perfectly is, it's got this idea of complete, of, of bringing about a final realization of complete fulfillment, which implies to me that when Jesus is praying for that, he is talking about a process, an ongoing work that he is doing where day after day, week after week, Jesus is praying that we would be knitted more and more together more united in our conviction, more knit together in love. And as this takes place, the glory of God will be more and more visible to the rest of the world. I want to say this is what Jesus' vision is for this church. And it's not just his vision for this church, it is his prayer for this church, which means it is what God is doing among you and me right now. And I encourage us even now as we 
are given this greater sense of our extraordinary calling to respond to God in prayer, asking that God would continue to do this work in us, confessing where there are ways that we have resisted this work and looking to God for help. Let's take a couple of minutes to respond in quiet prayer, and then I will lead us in prayer in a couple of minutes' time.